Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. As Russian forces move away from Ukraine's capital, stark evidence of apparent war crimes are being found. Bodies of people with bullet wounds and hands tied. We talked to someone who's witnessed the harrowing scenes. One thing that was that would stick with me as well was the mass graves that were dug and civilians were just piled into it. Um, you saw corpses everywhere that have been burnt and the only reason I can imagine they were doing that was to try to disguise the evidence. Ukraine's president says this is being repeated across his country but how can anyone be held to account? We'll ask a former war crimes prosecutor. I think it's easy to look at this evidence and conclude that war crimes have been committed. The problem is whom do you charge? And 40 years on, we get a unique perspective on the start of the Falklands War from someone who was nearly murdered by Argentina's military dictatorship, then treated as a VIP guest. Then he turned to me and he said, Senor Magnon, we have this, um, this message says that we have just destroyed your aircraft carrier, the Invincible, with an airstrike. And um, <laughs> he then said, rather surprisingly, he said, do you think this is true? Well, obviously, I had not the slightest idea. Russian troops have tortured and murdered Ukrainians simply for fun, so said Ukraine's president when he addressed the UN Security Council and showed them images of bodies lying in streets, some burned or mutilated. After Russian forces withdrew from the city of Bucha, some civilians were found shot dead with their hands tied. This is not just the inevitable horror of war or collateral damage, but deliberate human brutality that, if proved, would be a war crime. Filmmaker and former Royal Marine Emil Gesson visited Butcher a few days ago. Butcher was a massive eye-opener for me. When we got there, there were several civilians that had their hands tied and were executed. There was Russian soldiers still inside the tanks that had been destroyed and ambushed by Ukrainian forces. And the whole, the whole city was just a mess. It's been um, really badly damaged by artillery and mortar fire. And what was it like being there? Yeah, it was, it was tough there. Um, a cameraman I've got with me, he's a Ukrainian and for him, it was really tough because it's his people. He used to go holiday in Butcher, so he, he, he knows the streets and seeing them littered with tanks, um, destroyed everywhere, civilians who've just been tied up and, and killed, for him, was really hard. For me as well, is I'm used to seeing war, but at the same time, when you see civilians, it, does, it gets you emotional because civilians should not be killed in that manner. And what's happening in Butcher now? So in Bucha now is the Ukrainian army have now taken over, secured the outer perimeter of it. And what they're doing is a clear up operation where they're going from house to house searching for any Russians that have been left, left behind or hiding or saboteurs or special forces guys. And what they're doing is they're collecting the bodies and to then repatriate them back to Kiev so people can identify them and do autopsies. But one thing that was that would stick with me as well was the mass graves that were dug um, and civilians were just piled into it. What the Russians were doing as well, and a lot of people were saying this is fake news and propaganda, and it's not at all, is the Russians were burning civilian bodies. Um, you saw corpses everywhere that had been burnt, and the only reason I can imagine they were doing that was to try to disguise the evidence. Yes, in that light then, the staged attack, those allegations that it was all fake, do you think that's the most prominent evidence to convince you that that may actually prove in court who is responsible? 
Yeah, 100%. Um, there's some open source um, companies that have been doing satellite photos to show that the bodies were in the street. This was not staged. Anyone who does, I get lots of messages on social media saying this is fake. The Ukrainians have done this. Um, that's not the case. Is when the Ukrainians went in, there was journalists with them who were documenting it. And they were the first Ukrainian forces into Buchar once it was liberated. How does this compare, this experience and what you've seen to what you've experienced before in your career? Because you've been to several conflict zones. Yeah, this war is very different in the sense the scale of it. In the fact is, there's large, massive amount of armour that's been used. The Russians have been heavily bombing. And knowing that is Ukrainians have been returning fire as well. So we can't say that all the buildings destroyed are destroyed by Russia because the Ukrainians have been doing counterattack. There's lots of footage I was showing of, of the armoured columns of the the Russians who were ambushed, who were driving down the streets and just being guys from the Ukrainian military popping up in the woodlines, taking them out with end laws supplied by Britain. Um, so it has been large-scale battles in the streets of Bucha and Erpin. Erpin is where you're speaking to us from now. You've been there before. How much have you been able to see there this time? And what does it tell you about what's happened there? There's a massive clean-up operation where lots of civilians are now slowly moving back in and cleaning the debris of the buildings. Is The city is, I would say, 40% destroyed. As we were literally leaving Irpin, there was 14 body bags on the side of the road. An ambulance turned up and me and my, my cameraman ended up helping put the body bags into the back of a truck um, because they're still finding civilians and soldiers all over the city. Yeah, it's, it's now they're going into the reoccupation phase for the clear-up. But the thing is with these of Irpin and Butcher is a lot of civilians aren't convinced that the Russians aren't going to come back and that's the issue we've got here is that people think the war is not over it's just to push them back further potentially the Russians could regroup and actually re-attack again. The footage you filmed could include evidence of war crimes would you be prepared to hand it over if you're asked? Yeah of course if, if I was asked by the authorities to hand over my footage then they can take my footage of course they can use that. Emil Gessen in Ukraine. Well, the evidence seems compelling as well as harrowing, but how can justice be done? Law professor Gregory Gordon is a former war crimes prosecutor for the US Department of Justice. His work includes the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I think it's easy to look at this evidence and conclude that war crimes have been committed. The problem is, whom do you charge? And that's going to be, I think, the crux of the investigation in many of these crime scenes. You start from the ground and you work your way up. Um, you try to find out who was there, time, place. And then you have to, again, work your way up. What's the chain of command? And do you have evidence that orders were coming from above that would lead to this sort of thing. And even if there weren't orders, there's a concept called command responsibility. And if you can prove that there was a superior subordinate relationship and that a commander knew or should have known that these sorts of things would take place and didn't do what was necessary to prevent this sort of thing from happening or didn't punish people in the wake of it, then you can prove what we call command responsibility. And how exactly do you go about finding the facts? What are the tools you need? You're going to want investigators to go out into the field. There's forensic evidence that needs to be collected. Uh, so the bodies, there are mass graves, for example, that we've seen in the outskirts of Kiev. And you want to dig those up. You, you have to engage in uh, very meticulous chronicling of the victims and the way that they were killed and all that has to be written up, analyzed. There, all, you always have to be worried about chain of custody. 
So evidence has to be handled carefully. Reports have to be written. Uh, witnesses have to be interviewed. And you then want to try to corroborate what the witnesses are saying with other objective facts so that you're not just relying, for example, on eyewitness testimony. The other thing that's new that I think should be part of the investigation now is social media evidence. So you should try to find, in connection to these various crime scenes, uh, social media that would show, for example, uh, that there were people in the area or that activities were taking place uh, or even people who are talking about what happened. And you're going to put that all together and that's what's going to help you establish your case. And is it possible to be gathering that evidence while a conflict is ongoing? That's a great question because that's one of the big challenges. It's very difficult, as a matter of fact. I would think, however, that in, for example, a place like Bucha, where the Russians have withdrawn, at least that now there's a window of opportunity to conduct investigations. But of course, that window could close. And I think it's very important to do it quickly, but at the same time, not compromise quality. So I think there is a tremendous challenge there. Um, and in places where there's actual combat operations going on, then it's doubly difficult and also potentially dangerous. The charge of genocide has been leveled by both sides against the other. What is the threshold that distinguishes genocide from murder? So genocide is a series of actions committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. And that list of acts, acts includes killing, as you just pointed out, but it's more than just that. It's also causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. There are a lot of potential acts that could be genocide, but the key is to prove that intent. It's probably the most difficult mens rea or mental element to prove in any crime, in any field, and therefore it distinguishes it from the other atrocities that we routinely talk about, crimes against humanity and war crimes. It does seem clear atrocities have been committed in Ukraine. How likely do you think it is that perpetrators will be identified, will be prosecuted, and how high might the buck go? So those are all separate questions that should be answered separately. I think it's fairly likely that lower level people can be connected to these crimes. Another question raised, though, is if they'll be in custody of any institution that can prosecute them. And, and that's not entirely clear. I think the higher you go up the chain, the harder it's going to be to connect people to the crime scenes, as I've been discussing. And you asked me how high the buck could go. I think it probably likely could go to sort of mid-level commanders. I think it gets increasingly difficult if, as you get into the higher echelons, uh, and as you go into Moscow itself and, and look at somebody like Putin. Former war crimes prosecutor Professor Gregory Gordon. Well, let's look at the big picture across Ukraine with Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, the NATO Secretary General says a new Russian offensive is on the way, but not immediately. Do movements on the ground support that theory? 
yes, they do. <clears throat> it's clear that the Russians are reconstituting their forces, though, you know, we say, if you say it quickly, it sounds obvious, but reconstitution takes some time. They've taken a real mauling. They have undoubtedly been beaten up in the north in Kiev and Chernihiv and Sumy. And it looks as if the Russians have either lost or had badly damaged about 50% of their uh, battalion tactical groups, and they're trying to reconstitute them. But they're reconstituting them with soldiers who have already been beaten, and they're redeploying them down into the southeast, along with some, some new units. And what's happening in the southeast is that it looks as if the Russians are trying to encircle part of the Ukrainian army, the Joint Forces Operation, as the Ukrainians call it, it's the best part of their army. They've been dug in there uh, for about eight years now against the separatist republics, and they're very good, and they are tough soldiers. But the Russians can go either for a fairly big encirclement, which I don't think they can do, but you're looking at a line, for, say, from Kharkiv through Dnipro to Mariupol. Ultimately, that's what they'll try to do, to create a big line there. But they can't do that at the moment. So it looks as if what they're trying to do is they've taken Izium, which is a very important place, and it's quite a loss for the Ukrainians to lose Izium because it was their military base in the area of Luhansk. And to push from Izium towards Sloviansk, which is only about uh, 30 miles away, and people are now leaving Sloviansk, and then to Mariupol, and mm. create a, a line there which will trap a lot of the... Uh, JFO, the Joint Forces Operations of Ukraine, on the wrong side of that line. Whether the Russians will be able to do it, we're not sure, but they're trying. And the reasons that they seem to be trying so vehemently at the moment is because all the intelligence indicates that Putin is desperate to get something out of this war in time for the 9th of May, which is the victory parade. And if that's true, it's, it sounds crazy. Um, but if it's true, then it means the Russians have got to come up with something in the next three weeks that looks like a sort of victory. And that's where we might be for the, uh, for the coming month. And Emil Gesson told us that people in Irpin and Bucha near the capital Kiev fear the Russians will be back. Is it really over for the Western two-thirds of Ukraine? Is it really just about those areas you've just been talking about now? Well, it's certainly now about the East that we've just been discussing. But I, I think, you know, the Ukrainians would always say you can't you can't trust anything that Putin's Russia is likely to do. Even if the Russians withdraw on some terms that we can only guess at at the moment and, and Putin stays in power for the next two or three years, then the Ukrainians have got to expect that there will be another attempt to do this. The Czech Republic has sent tanks, Soviet-era T-72s, to Ukraine, reportedly 90 of them. How much will that bolster Ukraine's forces? Well, quite a lot at the moment. Um, as we move into this, this second phase that we're talking about, this battle in the southeast, the Ukrainians have got to be able to move forward, not just defend, which is what they've been doing so well around uh, Kiev, but to, uh, to move forward in more than local areas. So they now need to, to get more offensive weaponry to use, albeit in this big defensive battle. So yes, T-72 tanks, probably the best thing they can have at the moment, plus armoured vehicles. Um, armoured infantry, uh, fighting vehicles or uh, armoured personnel carriers. They need more armour to give them mobility to be able to take on this new Russian offensive as it develops. This week marks 40 years since the UK last launched a major military operation on its own. The mission to retake the Falkland Islands. The government has now decided that a large task force will sail as soon as all preparations are complete. HMS Invincible will be in the lead. 
The first of more than 120 ships set sail on the 5th of April 1982. Services marking the anniversary were held at St Paul's Cathedral and Marchwood Military Port where the task force was loaded up and dispatched. The military strategist said a week to two weeks. It happened in three days on this port 40 years ago. And to think back on there now with armour rolling around and the ships leaving is quite incredible. Major Rob Marshall is the current operations officer for 17 Port and Maritime Regiment, which did the job in 1982. Then Mark Mason was a driver with the regiment and sailed on RFA Sir Percival. Everyone was just running around, obviously knowing what they're doing. Port Ops were very good with their organisation. There was a lot of activity, a lot of people, and then there was silence because we were sitting out on the Percy going out to sea. Of the thousands of British personnel who served in the Falklands conflict, just 40 were women, including Nikki Pugh, who was on HMS Uganda. We were a floating hospital 8,000 miles from home. These guys really needed us, let's be quite frank. If there was something that you could carry in your head that in a strange way supported our nursing staff, we really appreciated the strength, the courage and the bravery of those servicemen. We'll talk a lot more in the coming weeks about what happened in the Falklands conflict and its legacy. But this week, a unique perspective from someone who was in Argentina 40 years ago. The country was run by a military junta, a dictatorship facing major public protests, which decided capturing the Falkland Islands would shore up its position. ITV journalist Julian Mannion interviewed the leader, General Galtieri, and was wined and dined as a VIP by other Argentinian top brass, but only after he narrowly escaped death, as he records in his new book, Kidnapped by the Junta. We had been at the foreign ministry attempting to secure an interview with the foreign minister, Nicanor Costa-Mendes. We then left the foreign ministry, got in the car and began to drive off. Literally minutes later, another vehicle cut across our path. I got out of our car to see what on earth was going on and immediately found myself with a pistol in my face and being propelled by a couple of very powerful men into the back of their car where I was made to lie down in the, in the rear well and driven off. And you even endured a mock execution. What happened? Well, also kidnapped in the same way where our cameraman, Ted Adcock, uh, and our sound recorders, Trevor Hunter, the three of us found ourselves in a field. Uh, we were instructed to take off our clothes, except for our underpants for some reason, at, at which point one of the men produced a rifle from the boot of the car and we were told to walk away from them. And it must be said that at that moment, uh, all of us were convinced that our number was up. But in fact, what took place was that we walked very slowly away from them. And instead of hearing what everyone hears when one is being shot, what we heard was the sound of tyres scrunching on soil. And when we dared to turn around, uh, our kidnappers' ve vehicles had gone and we were alone and virtually naked in a field in a country uh, with which Britain was at war. Do you know why you were released? Was it a mistake or did your kidnappers have second thoughts? The simple answer to that is no. Um, we don't know what thoughts they had because they didn't uh, trouble to explain them. What we do know is that they were in frequent radio contact with somebody, though we don't know who. Julian, when you talk about this experience, it sounds like you are almost reporting on your own life. You, you, it must affect you, though. 
Well, I mean, it affected one at the time. Um, I mean, we are 40 years past it, thankfully. You know, it is part of the job of covering conflict, as um, our colleagues uh, attempted to cover the conflict in Ukraine presently know all too well. Why were you targeted? Of course, it's not entirely clear, but our information about this comes from uh, the recent release of a number of documents the American Central Intelligence Agency. And among those documents are five dealing with our kidnapping. One of them identifies the name of the leader of the kidnapped gang. His name was Annabel Gordon, a really bloodstained figure who had killed many people. And there are also various suggestions as to why this had taken place. It should be said um, that in the American documents is a very interesting report from the CIA warning that their sources inside the um, Army Intelligence Services uh, were reporting that uh, these uh, units were preparing to carry out the murder of some 500 uh, British residents in Argentina if the war involved serious bloodshed. Now, we don't know if we fit in, if it into that picture, but all I can say is that on that day, we were dumped nearly naked in a field in the middle of Argentina. Uh, and happily, we were able to return to Buenos Aires and the threat to murder large number of British residents was not realised. And then you describe an extraordinary turn of events when you were wined and dined, almost by way of apology, by the very top echelons of the country's military. And you are even hosted by President Galtieri. It was, must have been extraordinary. Well, it was extraordinary in the sense that um, when we uh, finally got back to Buenos Aires by way of a rather startled uh, police chief in the town of Pilar, and then shortly after that, um, uh, the message arrived from the presidential palace that President Galtieri would like to um, receive us um, later that uh, evening. It turned out to be very late that night. We went to what was called the Casa Rosada, the Pink Palace, um, and met Galtieri himself who was extremely cordial and did uh, actually express his regret for what had happened and said that I asked him uh, who had done it. Uh, and he said, um, uh, in other words, a very small group that did not want peace. Following this, uh, we were able to interview him. And uh, after that, we were taken to dinner. It was by, by now about two o'clock or so in the morning uh, by the interior minister, uh, General Alfredo Saint-Jean, together with a group of army and navy officers, naval officers, all smartly uniformed. Uh, we were wined and dined into the small hours. And, and Julian, there you were in that restaurant, Los Años Locos, having dinner with the, with the junta as it was in conflict with the UK over the Falklands. What was going through your mind? I was uh, seeking both to sort of recover from the experience of uh, being kidnapped and possibly murdered um, and uh, trying to, at the same time, uh, gain some sort of feel of what these gentlemen thought and had to say. One of the curious events which took place during that dinner was that about halfway through, Another smartly uniformed officer, perhaps a lieutenant, came in to the room carrying a silver salver on which was an envelope. And um, he delivered it to the interior minister, Saint-Jean, who opened it. And then he turned to me and he said, Senior Magnon, this, um, this message says that we have just destroyed your aircraft carrier, the Invincible, with an airstrike. 
And um, <laughs> he then said, rather surprisingly, he said, do you think this is true? Well, obviously, I had not the slightest idea, I mean, that such a terrible event could have taken place or not. The Argentine officers uh, then toasted the, this apparently successful blow against the Royal Navy, uh, and the dinner continued. In fact, it turned out that what had happened was that an airstrike had hit one of the frigates, and the bomb had literally gone in one side of the ship and out the other um, without exploding. It illustrated, I think, if nothing else, uh, the rather limited information the Argentines were receiving about what was taking place in the war zone. Your ambition was always to be an international reporter. If you were reporting now, where would you be and what would you be doing? Would it be Ukraine or somewhere else? Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, obviously, I, I've retired from that and at the age of 71, I'm not in a condition <laughs> where I could be crawling around on my belly uh, on the outskirts <laughs> of Kiev, for example. Um, the, uh, the, I mean, I, I spent five years in Russia and I covered extensively the, the, the Russian war in Chechnya, which was a sort of prototype for what is taking place now. Having said that, in the, this new war which Putin has launched, um, the, the option does not exist, I believe, for a Western journalist uh, to cover the war from the Russian side. So I would assume that if I were uh, assigned to cover it, I would be doing it on, like many of my colleagues <laughs> on the Ukrainian side uh, and hoping against hope that I didn't make uh, the fatal misjudgment of going one checkpoint too far, as one or two of our colleagues sadly have done. Former ITV journalist Julian Mannion, his book is called Kidnapped by the Junta. Professor Michael Clark will reflect more in a moment on Julian Mannion's thoughts about Ukraine. But first, your thoughts on the 40th anniversary of the start of the Falklands War. How has that war shaped the armed forces we have today? Yes, I mean, it gave them an enormous boost in prestige. I mean, it was a very high-risk operation. It was an expeditionary operation. Uh, you know, world-class forces, but small numbers going 8,000 miles to liberate a territory. It's very hard to liberate a territory that's already been conquered. And, you know, one of the things I, I think of most is the degree of help we had from the United States that wasn't really talked about much at the time. Because if you remember, Ronald Reagan was faced with the, the politics of the fact that one of his allies, Britain, was about to go to war with another of his allies, Argentina. And he was trying to balance the two. He didn't want to have to make a choice. And that's understandable from his point of view. But the Defence Secretary, Caspar Weinberger, was very, very pro-British. And I spoke a few years ago to the American commander of Ascension Island at the time. That's a British British and American base. The Americans had a lot of equipment there. And our task force stopped at Ascension Island for quite a long time, while more and more ships, these 120 ships that you mentioned, were catching up, as it were. And the American commander said to me that the, the instructions he received from the Pentagon was, never mind the politics, give the Brits whatever they want. And he said to, to the British commanders, you know, whatever we have, it's yours. Do you tell us what you want? You can have it. And that was really important. And as the task force built up, of course, you know, we needed to send the Navy in particular, send everything. If you remember, that was the year, 1982, when the Mary Rose was lifted from the Solent. Remember the Mary mm, Rose, yes, Henry VIII's flagship that's, that's, that uh, sank in um, uh, 1545? Well, the joke that was going around a few months later is if only they'd raised it a bit earlier, they'd have sent it with a task force. They sent everything else. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was it was a big, big, it was a big moment. It was a small war and a very big moment. And Britain misjudged Argentina in 1982. It thought there would be no invasion. Indeed, the foreign secretary had to resign. Would such a misjudgment be possible ever again? 
Well, yes. I mean, I think Lord Carrington gets a bad press on this because the Franks report, which came out the following year, looking at, you know, why things had happened the way they had, the Franks report revealed very clearly that Carrington brought up the Falklands problem no less than four times at Cabinet before 82, saying that if we don't address the problem, there will be an invasion. Four times he said it to Mrs Thatcher and the Cabinet. And each time they were fobbed off, oh, it was all too difficult. And so he stopped talking about it. He tried and then he stopped. But it wasn't his fault. Now, today, the UK's intelligence judgment on the invasion of Ukraine was proved correct. When we were chatting with Julian Mannion, he said one lesson from the Falklands is that it's a great deal easier to start a war than to end it. The Falklands was in uh, over in 10 weeks, seven if you take off the time it took the task force to arrive. It's six weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. How long do you think before this war has an actual end? Yes, and I think Mr Putin is is learning the hard way now that it's much easier to start a war than to stop one. And what's interesting about what is happening, because I think this is going to be an open-ended conflict for some time, is that as Putin's military aims become more limited, his political aims become ever, ever greater. His, his rhetoric is getting more ferocious because he's, he's, he's selling this war at home to Russia as the war of the West against Russia. He's saying that Ukraine is just the, the instrument of the fact that the West is trying to destroy us. And he's trying to translate this war into the grand European war that the Soviet Union feared from 1945 onwards. And the thought that haunts me is that this may be the beginning of a much more general European conflict because he's trying to make it that way, even though his military aims for the moment are really quite limited. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. Before then, if you want to hear more detail from Julian Mannion on his extraordinary experiences in Argentina at the start of the Falklands War, the full interview is online now. It includes some indiscreet but illuminating comments from one Argentinian officer about the country's dictator. You can find the extra edition at bfbs.com slash sit rep or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 